This is Digital Health Today, episode 23. My ideal vision of the future is more understanding our genes and engaging in our own personal biological health in a way that we can live a lifestyle that prevents some of the diseases we may be predisposed to. Welcome to Digital Health Today, the podcast focused on the leaders, innovators, and technologies transforming healthcare today and tomorrow. This episode is brought to you by Bayer Grants for Apps. Bayer Grants for Apps invites you to submit your innovative healthcare projects. Selective startups will receive funding, office space, and mentorship by top Bayer professionals. Apply online at grants4apps.com. That's grants, the number four apps.com. But hurry, applications close on May 31st, 2017. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Digital Health Today, where we work to understand and implement the health technology of tomorrow today. I'm your host, Dan Kendall, and my guest is Dr. Daisy Robinton. I met Daisy at Wired Health in London earlier this year, where she delivered a tremendous talk about bioengineering. And once I heard it, I knew that I had to ask her to come onto the program here to share her insights and inspiration. Daisy is a scientist in gene editing at Harvard University, studying stem cell biology at the intersection of embryonic development and cancer. Her research focuses on molecular, cellular, and developmental biology, and her papers focus on the potential and promise of stem cell research. In addition to her scientific career, she's also an entrepreneur. Along with Dr. Jack Kreinler, she co-founded Weird and Wonderful, which is a production company where they combine the arts with science to make the story of science entertaining and to help reach a broader audience. She was recently named one of Forbes 30 Under 30 for 2017, and just in the nick of time, I might add, she just recently celebrated her 30th birthday. She's also a fashion and lifestyle model, promoting brands such as Reebok and Garmin. She's also an accomplished speaker. I mentioned the Wired Health talk that she gave in London just a few months ago, and she also gave a TED talk where she talks about the potential of gene therapy in treating aging. In this episode, Daisy and I speak about how new technologies such as CRISPR-Cas9 are accelerating the development of new genetic therapies and how science and society are responding to and adapting to the new possibilities bioengineering technologies present. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I think you will as well. Please check out the show notes at digitalhealthtoday.com 23, and there you'll find videos of Daisy's TED Talk as well as the talk she gave at Wired Health in London. Now let's tune into the conversation with Dr. Daisy Robinson. Thanks a lot for joining me on the program, Daisy. I've shared with the listeners a little bit about your background. Can you give me some more insight and fill in more information about the journey you've taken to get to where you are today? Absolutely. And thanks so much for having me. The journey I've taken to get where I am today has been a little bit nonlinear, I guess would be the right word. But you know, being a scientist, of course, I had to go through the steps of all the science degrees. And one of the most important parts of my journey that brought me to where I am was while I was studying at UCLA as an undergraduate student, and I took a course with a professor there named Bob Goldberg, who I was lucky enough to have as a mentor for the rest of my time there. And he taught a class that was a sort of science and society class. It was called Genetic Engineering and Medicine, Agriculture, and Science. And really what was amazing about that class was that it was designed for non-science students. And most of the students in the class were non-science. I was undeclared at the time. And we really took a deep dive into nitty-gritty of science. But then we also sort of zoomed out and took this larger perspective of what different technologies mean and what are the ethics and what are interesting questions around discovery. And and that class really tipped me on the path to pursuing a PhD. And I ended up helping Bob teach that class for several years after that. And it not only 
sort of gave me the confidence to really pursue science, which I think is a really important piece of many people's journey for those who go into science and especially for women. But also it gave me a passion for the communication of science and for teaching and for really showing people the power that they have to engage in their own knowledge and to question things that they read in the news, which I think is particularly relevant today, and to really, you know, use their brains because we all have them and we all can use them. For me, that class was a was a stepping stone that was really critical and important and pushed me forward. And um, from there, I feel like life just kind of happens sometimes. <laughs> I went forward, I went off to do a PhD at Harvard with George Daly, who's a fabulous mentor also. And I had this really amazing, rich environment in Boston full of all these different incredible resources and people to learn and grow. And from there, just sort of tried to push forward the things that really moved me, which were, of course, my science, but also this speaking and communication bit to people that are non-scientists and, and trying to show them one, the wonder of the world, but two, information that's useful for them that they can act on. And that will be what I think is going to be an important part of their future. And we have this whole revolution in personalized medicine and different technologies that are really enabling us to do a better job of taking better care of ourselves, but also treating diseases as they crop up. And I think that the more people know, the better they can do to engage in that. You have a real gift for being able to take these very complex topics and describe them in a way that people can understand how that would be applied in their own lives. You also have a personal story, and you shared that at Wired Health in terms of the experience that you and your sister Lily had when you were growing up. Can you give us some uh, insight into that? Yes. I think that many of us that go into research often have a similar personal story. We all have people who we care about who suffer, you know, in some way. And a lot of times that suffering is because of a disease. And a lot of times that disease is random. You know, it's a lottery thing. It's, it's um, you know, cancer or, or in this case, diabetes. And, and for me, it was my sister, Lily. She was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes when she was 11 years old. I was seven, so I was very young. And my sister and I were very close and we slept in adjoining bedrooms and when she was diagnosed with diabetes, I vividly remember that relationship changing a little bit, or maybe changing isn't the right word, but I just remember it, it had this dimensionality that grew from this moment because what used to be, you know, our, our adjoining bedrooms where we would sort of chat and giggle and, you know, whatever late to the night and finally fall asleep became this other sort of channel of information, if you will, uh, that space between us. And that's because a lot of people, when they're first diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, are children. So my father would wake up every night, and sometimes my mom as well, but I remember most often my father coming into her room 3 in the morning, helping her check her blood sugar. And like any normal child, <laughs> Lily really hated needles and really hated the process. So I just remember always waking up, the light would be on, she would oftentimes be crying or being kind of upset and my dad would have to sort of talk her into, you know, just pricking her finger and drawing some blood and testing her blood sugar. And so I really remember that vividly because I was so young and I saw how it really affected my sister who I cared deeply for. And it just was a really tough time for her. So that experience for me was, was formative because I didn't feel satisfied with how Lily was able to care for herself given that she had that disease. And I felt like there's so many people all over the world that have afflictions like Lily's that they can't really do a whole lot about to live these robust, resilient lives. 
So I went into science, partially motivated by the sort of personal family story and wanting to do something more. And the only thing more I could really do, I felt, was try to understand disease better. And in understanding disease better, hopefully be able to develop some novel therapeutic strategy to help people like my sister Lily. Daisy, thanks for sharing that story. It's amazing how sometimes those early childhood experiences really shape the decisions that we make later on in life. At the Wired Health Conference, the main focus of your talk was around the CRISPR technology. Mm -hmm. Can you explain what the CRISPR technology is and and sort of how it came about? Absolutely. CRISPR-Cas9 has been this really unbelievable technology that's really revolutionized our ability to execute in scientific experiments. But also, um, one of the things that I think is most exciting about it is that I think we will be able to translate its use as a technology and research to a therapeutic. So before I really get into that, I... I guess I'll share sort of how it came about because it helps describe really what it is. The discovery of CRISPR-Cas9 and and sort of the adoption of its uses as a technology really came from taking advantage of natural diversity in the world. There were these sort of seminal experiments done by scientists at a yogurt company called Denisco. And what they were doing was they were studying a bacteria called Streptococcus thermophilus. And and this bacteria is a workhorse of the yogurt and cheese industry. So they really, you know, they worked with it all the time to produce their goods. And they wanted to understand how these bacteria fight viruses because viruses infect bacteria and they kill them. And of course, if you're working at a company that depends on the bacteria, you want to understand the mechanisms of that defense against, you know, this uh, predator, if you will. And what they discovered in studying these bacteria in that context was there were these regions in the bacterial genome that had little bits of viral DNA incorporated into the bacterial genome. And they were separated by these little repeat, you know, sort of spacer sequences. So, you know, DNA sequence is a string of letters. And and in this particular region of the genome, there were these bits that were sort of repetitive elements. And in between each of these repetitive elements were bits of viral DNA. And, you know, they sort of scratched their head at this and and it took them a while to figure out. But ultimately what they discovered was that this region, which we now call the CRISPR locus, was essentially a form of adaptive immunity in bacteria, which is to say that when bacteria encountered a virus in its environment, its attack would be to chomp up the DNA that the virus injects into the cell as part of its, you know, viral life cycle. And so once the viral DNA was destroyed in the cell, some of it would get incorporated into this locus in the genome of the bacteria. And at a later date, that region served as a memory of the infection, much like when we, you know, have some sort of illness, we get immunity, we build, uh, we build antibodies against that virus or that, you know, pathogen um, as humans. And so bacteria have a very similar system, but in this case, it works by nucleic acids or DNA and RNA. So really, this CRISPR locus is their memory of viral infection. And they use each of those little viral elements that's integrated into their genome as a sort of guide to seek out and find similar sequences so that when that virus comes back and injects its DNA again, they'll be able to detect that they've seen it before and quickly destroy the DNA to reduce the chance of that virus going through its life cycle, which would cause the bacterial cell to die. Um, And so really what was unbelievable about this is that it was the first time that anyone had seen a case of 
RNA-directed precise DNA cleavage or, or cutting, if you will. So they would use this viral guide and it would go and bind and it would and it would cause cleavage of the DNA right at that site. And we had never before had this ability to have this incredibly precise cleavage of DNA. And another group of researchers saw this and thought, how amazing if we could take that and put it into other cells, whether they be animals or humans, human cells, and, and do the same thing because we have all this information and we have this genome data and genetic data, but we can't go through and actually execute all these little perturbations to the genome because it's really hard actually to you know, scan billions of base pairs and find the exact one you want and cut it to, to see what it does. So CRISPR-Cas9 really revolutionized that because we found a way to do it. You just engineer those bits of DNA that in the bacteria cell correspond to the viral infection, but you can, you know, it's only 20 letters long, 20 DNA letters. You can go online and order a string of DNA that that's, that is that length. And that's enough length to find any particular sequence in the genome of humans or any other organism. Uh, and then sort of readopt the machinery that exists in the bacteria cell in a different context so that you can go in and modify DNA in a very precise manner. And the one thing that I'll add onto that, it's not the first time that we've been able to do gene editing. There have been other technologies in the past. Talens are, are one that were sort of you know big and popular, and there were a couple of companies that used Talens for particular editing of genes, but what makes CRISPR-Cas9 different is that it's incredibly fast, cheap, and easy. It just depends on, you know, this one protein, basically, that executes the cut, but it really is guided by this DNA sequence, and, and synthesizing DNA is incredibly cheap and incredibly easy, and you can do it at a huge scale as well, and so those features really made CRISPR-Cas9, you know, a, a, a new, exciting, different technology that really changed the way that we do science because it's just nimble in a way that the other technologies have not been in the past. And it's a fairly new technology as well, right? It was only, I think, 2015 yeah. that it was discovered. And in your presentation, when I heard you speak in, in London, you explained that there are about 6,000 diseases that are caused by genetic mutations. Mm -hmm. But a very small number of these actually have approved therapy. So 95% mm -hmm. of these uh, or so of these genetic mutations don't have therapy. So ha give me an idea of what that's like to try to unpick that, because you also explained that we're not exactly sure with these mutations if they're associated or perhaps mm -hmm. causal of these, mm -hmm. of these diseases. So can you explain more about that? Sure. So I think a great example of scale for this particular question is if you think back to when the human genome was first sort of published, if you will, which, which actually the human genome sequence was collected uh, from many in individuals and sort of pieced together. But now, as, as we know, there is variation among people. And even within your own body, cells accumulate mutations at different rates. And so your genome in some cells will slightly, very slightly differ from, from your genome in other cells. And and, you know, cancer is a great example. If you sequence the genome of somebody's cancer, there will be variations in the genome of those cells from, you know, the more healthy tissue in their body. And so what we don't know, per se, is, is how those differences, how many of them are just 
random, which some of them are, um, you know, just random mutations that actually don't do anything versus functional or contributing to a particular disease. So because mutations are, you know, just occurring sort of at a basal level all the time with every cell division, there's a number of them that most of them that don't really do a whole lot, thankfully for us. And and that's for a variety of reasons, but really what's important from the research standpoint is, is we want to know which, how can we dissect out which of them are, you know, linked to a disease because they happen to occur at a significant rate in people with that disease or, they are functionally relevant. And and one of the reasons that CRISPR-Cas9 has been so exciting is that we can really test that quickly and we can look at several things at once. So, you know, any given disease might have associated genetic variations with it. Let's say there's 10 genetic variations that sort of link to a particular disease like Alzheimer's, for example. And the only way to really test whether or not they do anything or not is to manipulate them, to perturb them in a model of that disease. And so that means to, you know, get rid of them um, and see what happens in the context of the disease or to add them in when they don't already exist and see if it it pushes the disease forward, makes it worse, um, initiates the disease. That's sort of how we approach, you know, genetic studies of disease. So really, you know, the fact that we have this huge wealth of data around genetic variations and their associations with diseases, we're now, we now have the power to actually start testing hypotheses on what each of those mutations does, both singly and in multiplex, like I mentioned before, to really determine if they are causal or, you know, instigating a disease, you know, in, in different models depending on models or cell models. So clearly there's a huge amount of research being done all around the the world in this area. And I know Mm -hmm. earlier this year, 2017, the National Academy of Sciences and the National Academy of Medicine came out in support of modifying human embryos Mm -hmm. uh, to create genetic traits that can be passed down to future generations. And this has really Mm -hmm. been a controversial topic over the years. And I guess we kind of keep kicking the can down the road and we haven't had to think about it. And now it's getting to the point where we need to have this discussion uh, in a public forum uh, and there needs to be a lot more understanding. I know you don't speak on behalf of those organizations, but can you share some insight Mm -hmm. about why they would come out in support of doing this sort of modification now and where it's going to be applied or or considered in uh, the coming years? The report that came out really... I think was important to reigniting a conversation that I think is difficult for many people to have, but is one that we as a global community need to have because we, with the advance of technology, of course, there are new possibilities and new opportunities. And and we have a really unique opportunity in front of us, which is that we have the ability to eradicate certain types of diseases that are incredibly crippling and incredibly damaging to individuals and families and communities and our overall health and economy even. So with the report that came out, those agencies really drew a stark distinction between the types of things that we're likely to engage in in terms of manipulation of human embryos. Scientists and you know doctors and, and people take human life very seriously. And it's, it's, it's very important to really be thoughtful in how we apply technology to that. Um, you know, I think in vitro fertilization is a great example of controversy in that area. Um, you know, the first, the first in vitro fertilization baby, Louise Brown was 
characterized as this test tube baby and a lot of people were very uncomfortable with it. But, you know, these days in vitro fertilization is commonplace and, and many people practice it uh, who have trouble conceiving. And a lot of times people use it when they're ill with other afflictions like cancer or something else. And I think that's an important example because I think that a lot of folks don't like the idea or are inherently averse to manipulating human embryos. But in this particular case, I would ask people to imagine, you know, a world without a disease like Huntington's. Huntington's disease is universally fatal. The onset's around 40 years old. It's a genetic disease. And essentially, if you have the gene for it, then you will get it and there are no treatments for it. And it's a really, really devastating disease. And we know the genetic lesion that causes it and we just don't know how to stop it. But if we remove that genetic lesion... And if we were to do that in an embryo, uh, then that gene trait would not move forward in the population. And we could slowly sort of eradicate that from the population, or at least from individuals who are interested in removing that affliction from their family, from their family lineage. Uh, and so I think that's probably the quintessential example of how moving forward the early stages of human embryo manipulation are likely to unfold. I, I believe it's with these sort of very well-defined, well-characterized genetic diseases that are incredibly devastating and have no therapeutic options. I think that's a really great example, though, that you brought up the, the you know, quote, test tube baby sort of mm -hmm. uh, perspective, because it just shows how fast the scientific community as well as the cultures have moved on, because certainly mm -hmm. that is you would never raise an eyebrow, I don't think. I mean, I, I certainly would never think to raise an eyebrow uh, around someone, uh, you know, conceiving a baby in that way or someone who was mm -hmm. conceived in that way. Mm -hmm. um, I think when you give the example of Huntington's disease, I think when we're talking about trying to eradicate disease, that's, that's one thing. And I think a lot of people can support that in principle of let's mm -hmm. find a way to uh, you know, prevent uh, the, this sort of suffering and this sort of continuation of these bad genes. But I guess it, it also comes down to a question around, uh, I guess also when you think about um, embryos, I think they're also screened for these sorts of diseases mm -hmm. and, and, and perhaps destroyed if they they show these traits already, right? Sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, yeah I, I think um, one thing that I, that I just comment on regarding that, because of course that will get around a lot of things, um, with Huntington's in particular, and this is of course just one example, because the onset it typically is later, like in their 40s, a lot of folks don't necessarily know that it's in their genes or that it's in their sort of family lineage. So they might not conceive by in vitro fertilization. And there's many stories out there, you know, if you, if you are engaged in the Huntington's community of families that sort of realize too late that they, that one of the parents has, or, you know, both parents, whatever, have this gene. And now they have whatever, three kids, and they don't know if they have passed it on or what really is happening. And it sort of is an after the fact thing that, and they have no options. They're out of options at that point. Mm -hmm. They just, they're, that's where they are. <laughs> yeah. And, and I'm sure there's a long list that you could think of. I mean, spina bifida, muscular dystrophy and all mm -hmm. sorts of things that mm -hmm. perhaps uh, exhibit differently at different points in people's lives. But, you know, in terms of the question of whether people are, are carrying this on or passing this on to their children, it's often unknown. I think some of the question comes down to, not just preventing disease and addressing things like muscular dystrophy in the embryonic stage, but mm -hmm. also doing enhancements. So mm -hmm. not just strengthening muscles so that they're not diseased, but also providing strength or perhaps even 
beauty or intelligence based on enhancements that's being done with this sort of therapy. So what are some of the, the things that people are considering in that regard and some of the, the ways that people in the scientific community are addressing that? Right. So that's certainly something that I think is really interesting to think about. I think we're very far from that type of change being a reality. A lot of the early usage of this technology in a therapeutic setting is going to be specifically for people with no therapeutic alternatives because we're still trying to understand really what happens uh, when we use it and how safe is it and what are the sort of unintended consequences that you know, we don't even know to look for maybe. And so I think that'll be, you know, at least a decade as we really sort out that sort of thing. And it becomes more prevalent as a therapeutic tool. And we collect information much like we do with clinical trials for any new drug to treat patients. And there's a a handful of different perspectives on this. I being a scientific researcher motivated by the story, which I've already shared, I'm very interested in, in using this as a way to help people live more resilient lives and prevent them from you know, succumbing to disease, particularly, and, and sort of biological challenges that, are, that, we would, that we would characterize as disease. Now, with any technology, there's going to be a myriad of uses for it. And you know, already we have people, you mentioned Liz Parrish at the Wired conference, you know, her talk was really about gene editing herself to increase her muscle mass and to increase the length of her telomeres to be sort of you know, biologically younger. And she has a company that does that. And so, you know, I think that will be out there. I think that from a human embryo standpoint, that's going to be a much more difficult thing to achieve. So I think, you know, especially in the near term, this is not really a a consideration, but it is a thing that in the longer term will be a possibility. And it's part of the reason I think talking about it is so important. It's an amazing time. You know, we can change skin cells into stem cells. Craig Venter presented years ago about how to create a biological programmable robot where you could actually insert DNA into cells and and have it boot up as a different species. And yeah, yeah, I mean, there's some amazing things happening. You talked about regulation and clinical studies. Um, Mm -hmm. What's happening in the world community? Because obviously the the, the U.S. has a lot of bans in this sort of area, but there are other parts of the world where the scientific approach is, is far more uh, liberal or or less constrained. Uh, mm-hmm. What's happening globally? As far as I know, uh, the biggest sort of global thing that's really happening relating to CRISPR-Cas9 gene engineering is a clinical trial that's been ongoing in China that already has, I think, now 10 patients enrolled using a CRISPR therapeutic to treat metastatic non-small cell lung cancer with patients who haven't responded to other types of treatments. And they gave gene therapy uh, via CRISPR-Cas9 to the first patient, uh, I believe, in November or December. Basically, what what they did was they removed the uh, immune cells from the patient, and then they did gene editing to that patient's cells before putting them back into the body of that same person with the sort of goal of arming those immune cells with the ability to seek out, target, and destroy the patient's cancer. And, um, you know, I mean, oncology is a very hot field right now. There's uh, several companies that are really doing this, but this was the first case of CRISPR-Cas9 being used as a therapeutic period in humans and being used in this setting. And so that is ongoing and happening. And and we've heard positive things, but we don't know a whole lot beyond that. I believe there's a trial also happening out of UPenn 
that is similar. That's uh, immuno-oncology. I think it's a different type of cancer. And I don't know yet if they've actually started treating patients, but there is a trial in the U.S. that's happening with CRISPR. Beyond that, you know, I don't, I don't know. Okay. <laughs> you, yeah. never, you never really know uh, what's happening everywhere. But those are the publicized things that are happening in the world relating to this technology. We'll jump right back into the conversation with Daisy Robinson in just a moment. But first, I wanted to tell you about this episode's sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Bayer Grants for Apps. One of the things I love about Bayer is that they're really forward thinkers. They're thinking of ways to innovate their business and the industry, and they're not just saying that, they're actually investing and working to do it. How do I mean that? Well, this program is a perfect example. This is the fifth round of the Bayer Grants for Apps program, and the goal is to support innovative healthcare startups and developer teams all around the globe. Selected startups receive funding, office space, and mentorship by top Bayer professionals. Now that sounds great, but here's something even better. Applications for the Grants for Apps Accelerator program are now open. Grants for Apps invites you to submit your innovative healthcare projects. What are they looking for? A whole range of things, and they have a full list on the Grants for Apps website. They're looking for solutions that address patient compliance, prevention, healthy habits, patient empowerment, motivation, clinical trials, predictive behavior, and the list goes on. Basically, they're looking for software, hardware, technologies, or processes that can be applied to particular areas contributing to improved health outcomes or pharmaceutical processes. Sound like a fit? Applications are now open, but don't delay. The deadline to apply is May 31st, 2017. Get full details on their website at grantsforapps.com. And even if you're not interested in the Grants for Apps Accelerator, you should still go online and check out their new DealMaker program. That's for more mature teams, startups, and companies, and it's all about creating quality face time between you and Bear experts for one full day. You can learn more about both programs on their website, and you can even apply for both at the same time. Just visit grantsforapps.com or click on the link in the show notes. Now let's jump back to the conversation. You mentioned Liz Parrish, who was another speaker at Wired Health in London. I'm going to have her on to talk uh, about her work at BioViva and, and the things that she's doing and setting up her clinics. In the few weeks since we've met... The FDA has now given approval for 23andMe, and there's a list of some of the things mm, that they're able yeah. to to test for, and they're going to be able to give genetic predisposition tests directly to consumers. So they got a big you know, public smacking a few years ago mm-hmm. to regroup and, and rethink their business strategy as, and also put in place the, the trials. Is that the first step into creating a pathway where there's going to be widespread use and access to genetic therapies where people are suddenly going to become much more aware? We're not, we were talking about embryos before. Now we're talking about adults and uh, people mm-hmm. who are now finding out about their own predisposition. Are they going to be looking for genetic surgeons who are going to be not slicing their bodies open, but slicing their the, uh, section of their DNA out and putting in something different? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think it's a really interesting time with regard to that question, because our current healthcare system doesn't really have a place for these very deeply knowledgeable people with their specific expertise in genes. We train doctors to, you know, deal with the physical body and, you know, DNA is physical, of course, but it's physical on a much (laughs) smaller level. And I think, that we really are part of the training today for doctors and, and for providers in our healthcare system is going to have to be um, people that are geneticists that really understand genetics and understand their role in disease in a way that is something that's actionable. So I think one of the big things about 23andMe is, you know, you get this information and it's interesting. I've done it. I, I, I actually think it's awesome. I, I thought it was really interesting and I did it right before the FDA smackdown. So I got all the health data, um, which I was excited about just sneaking in under the radar there. But 
there's going to be a new class of people. I mean, we already have genetic counselors, which is sort of a, a newish profession, people that are really being trained to understand and translate that genetic data to people who, you know, have had their genome sequenced or their, in the case of 23andMe, SNPs, we call them SNPs, um, sequenced SNPs are really the genetic variants um, that sort of link to traits and really, you know, help people understand what that means. And I think there's, there's a couple interesting points here. I mean, I think on one hand you have, you know, however many people are enrolled in 23andMe and do that now. Uh, and they're people generally that are probably curious to know their ancestry and, you know, whether they have the gene for Alzheimer's, they have, I think, an APOE1 on there. And they're engaged in that. I, I don't know that the majority of humans or even the majority of Americans are, are that engaged in their health. Uh, my hope is that with this sort of information that we're now understanding better, people will be more interested because you can actually do something about it. And that's what I think this, uh, you know, gene surgeon, like you mentioned, will come into play in the future is it's not that useful to know you have a gene or a genetic trait if you can't do anything about it. A lot of people would prefer, you know, not to know actually in that case, it's an, it's an interesting, it's an interesting mm -hmm. ethical question really. And as we really move forward and start being able to do more and treat more and understand better. And maybe actually treat more is not even really the right word. I mean, my, my ideal vision of the future is more understanding our genes and engaging in our own personal biological health in a way that we can live a lifestyle that prevents some of the diseases we may be predisposed to. So I think that having a gene surgeon or a genetic counselor, or these sort of this class of doctors and professionals who are trained in that knowledge can help partner with a patient to really take advantage of the information that's coming out about what it means to have this little sequence variant that, you know, makes it really hard to digest bananas or something. So you don't eat bananas. And, you know, I think that's, I think that's something that our, our future is moving towards. And it's really going to be partially on the shoulders of the patient and of us to care and to, you know, ask questions about our own health and be willing to, you know, make room for our own biology and build lives that, that support our own wellness, you know, as, as many of us do every day in our decisions to exercise or not, or meditate or not, you know, smoke or not, we're going to have more information to move from. I know that clinicians have had a hard enough time dealing with all the questions and the results that Google spits out. So I can <laughs> only imagine how much more time <laughs> and the number of questions they're going to have I, uh, when, when people get the results from 23andMe or other sort of similar uh, systems that are out. I saw a video that <laughs> Z-Dog did recently. Do, do you follow Z-Dog out in no, Las no. Vegas? Oh, he's, he's got a great channel, actually a new, new show that he just did on YouTube, and he's been doing uh, some, some great videos. And he was talking about the sorts of questions that he got when he had his sequence done before mm -hmm. the shutdown uh, of 23andMe years ago and mm -hmm. how he, as a doctor, had difficulty trying to understand it and his doctors mm. had difficulty trying to understand and digest it. Yeah. So it's going to be a confusing time, but sort of generating that need. And then even as I've heard you speak about before, which is around having staged therapies as you mm. grow mm -hmm. uh, so that you can prevent the things that are sort of presenting to you at various points in your life. And maybe it could even impact uh, people like your sister who mm -hmm. you know, were diagnosed with type one, you know, very young and people are diagnosed, you know, every, every day, hundreds of times, thousands of mm -hmm. times a day for, for mm -hmm. various diseases. And there, there could be various therapies throughout. Is that the, what the future really holds in your view? 
I believe that it does. And, you know, one other point that I sort of meant to make and meandered off about the gene surgeon was once you are already a foreign human being, as you and I and most of your listeners are, you lose the ability to really change all of your cells, uh, at least with our current technology. And so I think that, you know, you mentioned the sort of staged genome manipulation earlier in life. I think that that type of thing where we have enough information about the genetics of different diseases and the sort of place in the body where they matter, because of course, many cells in your body don't care that you have a gene for diabetes because it's only really going to be impactful in, let's you know, say your pancreas, because that's where, that's where the cells that are affected are housed. So really having the ability to deliver the therapeutic to the organ or system in need at a time before the symptoms occur is something that I think will happen. That's very different from changing the human embryo, which means that all the cells in the body are likely to have that change. And then that person, that embryo that will become a person, if they have children, their genetic lineage will be permanently changed forever by whatever you do to that embryo, um, you know, which I think is you know, something that's amazing and really interesting and also a huge power and responsibility that needs to be thoughtfully considered. Mm-hmm. I think okay. that the future holds a lot more gene therapy. And I think that as we understand more about what it means to be human from the genetics level and then from all the layers that sit on top of genetics, we're going to have a very dramatic change in the way that we practice health and healthcare in this country. Really exciting yeah. times. So I really appreciate you taking the time to explain all this to the audience and, and put things in a way that I know if I can understand it, then a lot of other people can understand it. Cause <laughs> I, hope so. I, I like, I'm an engineer by training. I like to pick things apart and understand them mm-hmm. and their components. And, and you've done a great job explaining that. So thanks very much for doing that. Daisy, there's a, there are six questions that I'd like to ask all the guests that come on the show. Can you take a few more minutes with me? Absolutely. Yeah. Fantastic. So uh, what's a saying or phrase that motivates you? So, and I'm supposed to pick one, but I have two for you. The first is Marcel Proust has this quote that is the following. The real voyage of discovery consists not in seeking new landscapes, but in having new eyes. And the second, which I think is a great quote for scientists, is Nelson Mandela. And he said, education is the most powerful weapon which you can use to change the world. And I think these two quotes very much encapture how I try to move forward and create change and do something that's worthwhile. What advice do you have for others working to innovate in health? I think that anyone looking to innovate needs to be open to shifting their perspective and be actively trying to see new perspectives. I think innovation can only really come when you are able to shift the reality that you see in front of you and really you know, combine different perspectives together in a new and interesting way. What book do you recommend to our listeners? So you mentioned Juan Enriquez. He wrote this book called Evolving Ourselves that I, that I believe I, rec- I recommended to you mm-hmm. as well. That's, that's really about the evolution of humans throughout time. And it's a fascinating read about how human beings you know, sort of have come to be and how our future is likely to unfold. And, and it's just really amazing. And it's, Juan Enriquez and Steve Golans are the author. So I highly recommend that book. It's super interesting. I don't typically read um, you know, factual books like that that are like super biological because that's what I do every day. But this one really grabbed me and was wonderful and and very thought provoking. You also had recommended Sapiens by Yuval Harari, Mm. which uh, Mm -hmm. I've not read yet, but uh, just wanted to get that in because that was another one that that people who are listening to learn more about this topic. Yeah, actually, I've had a few people recommend that to me. So I need to do I need to pick that up and and, uh, take a read. What tech do you use that you wouldn't want to live without? 
So this is maybe silly, but I think FaceTime. And I say that because I'm so far from all of my family. Uh, and science is no easy task. And being able to see physically the people I care about as I'm talking to them has made a huge difference in my life <laughs> mm-hmm. in the years that I've been away from them. So, um, you know, I, I'm not a big gadget widget app person, but FaceTime has really made a very significant positive impact in my life. If I gave you a check for $5 million for you to invest in health technology today, how would you invest it? I would put it towards neuroimmunology, uh, partly because that is the new field I'm embarking into. So yay. But two, because neuroscience is such a fascinating field. And we have lately over the last, you know, five, 10 years, been seeing this rapid increase in technologies to really help us parse apart the human brain in a way that's been unprecedented. I mean, similar to the way CRISPR-Cas9 has transformed molecular biology, um, we're seeing a lot of really cool technology like optogenetics and others that are enabling us to really ask these super interesting questions. And I said neuroimmunology because we're also seeing this rise in a more systemic uh, perspective when we look at disease. And there's a lot of really interesting work coming out of that space. And I really think that it's the next frontier in biology. And lastly, we make a contribution to a charity in appreciation of your time on the show. What charity have you chosen? And can you tell us a little bit about what they do? Sure. I've chosen the KIPP Foundation. uh, And the reason that I chose this foundation is because they are education oriented. And as I've mentioned many times, I think that education and being sort of informed is the best tool any person can have to live well and, and have opportunity and make good choices. And the KIPP Foundation really works to create an environment in public schools to serve kids, um, a lot of them from underprivileged or underserved communities, uh, and really give them rich resources to grow from and learn from and, and, you know, have opportunity from. Awesome. Well, I'm on their website. That is a charity I'm not familiar with. So it's KIPP, K-I-P-P dot org. And mm-hmm. I'll have the link in the show notes. But for anybody listening who wants to make a, a donation to that, uh, that organization, please do look them up, K-I-P-P dot org. And thanks for nominating that group. Sure. Uh, Daisy, how can people follow you and keep track of the work that you're doing and uh, and stay in touch? Sure. So uh, there's a number of ways. I'm on Twitter. Uh, my handle is just Daisy Robinson, my name. Of course, I'm on LinkedIn. I, I publish all of my updates on you know talks and papers there as well. And people are welcome to reach out to me there. Excellent. Anything else you'd like to say to our listeners before I let you go? Um, I guess I would just encourage them to really, you know, learn and lean in. And obviously, if they're listening to the show, they're already doing that. But it's a really exciting time. And I really encourage people to instead of learning only about the world around you to learn about the world inside of you. There you have it. That was Dr. Daisy Robinson, scientist, speaker, lifestyle and fitness model and entrepreneur. It's an exciting time to be alive and working in healthcare as such significant advances are being made so rapidly. We have more guests coming up who will dive into how these scientific advances are being put into therapeutic practice. In fact, our next guest is going to cover some of the work being done around the world to overcome the challenges of bringing innovations to the point of implementation. That guest is Brian O'Connor. He's the chair of ECH Alliance. Don't miss out on his interview in episode 24. We always talk about innovation, but actually if we took what exists today and applied it and deployed it for the benefit of citizens and patients, we already have plenty of really good opportunities now to improve people's lives. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. All those links can be found on the website, along with the show notes of this episode at digitalhealthtoday.com forward slash 23, the number two, three. 
Thanks to our sponsor, Bayer Grants for Apps, for their support of the podcast. Don't forget to check out their website at grants4apps.com. Applications to their accelerator program are open now and close on May 31st, 2017, so don't miss out. Let me know if you plan to be at the Health 2.0 conference in Barcelona on the 3rd to the 5th of May. You can also find me at the Cube Tech Fair in Berlin on the following week, the 10th to the 12th of May. Later in the month, you can also find me at the World Precision Medicine Conference, which is being held in London on the 17th to the 19th of May. Check out more great events happening all over the world on our website at digitalhealthtoday.com forward slash events. Thanks again for tuning in. That's all for me for now. Until next time, keep on innovating.